0: Welcome to the CRE podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam
1: Pawatic. Welcome to this week's Thinking, brought to you with Informa. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. This week, we're going to be talking about sort of the evolution and future of industrial. Our guest this week is a gentleman by the name of Alan Perez. Alan is the CEO at CanFirst Capital Management and, I think interestingly, a sessional speaker, sessional instructor, I can't remember if I got that right, at York University's Schulich School of Business. Alan, thanks for coming on. Excited to have this conversation. Industrial is the hottest asset class. And I know you didn't plan it this way, but you found yourself now the CEO of, of a major investor in the hottest asset class. So I'm really excited about this conversation. First, of course, as always, we really like to kind of go backwards, just talk about your background, how you ended up in real estate, how you ended up focused on industrial, how you ended up the CEO of Can First Capital, how you ended up as an instructor at the Schulich School of Business at York University. So maybe just kind of give the guests and our listeners sort of background to your career.
2: Sure. Thanks, gentlemen, for having me. Very excited to be here. I've watched many of these podcasts in the past, so... Delighted to be here with you both today. Yeah, so look, it's as much as I hate to admit it, there's 40 years of history behind me there. Graduated from McGill University back in 1980 and uh, went to work for the Prudential Insurance Company of America right after I graduated and spent about seven years there. Started out in Montreal and then um, moved to Toronto, was involved in a number of development projects that the company had going on. At the time, and mostly in the office sector, actually, uh, we did some industrial development, some office development, and left and joined uh, a company called Candarel, which I think many of you would know Montreal based development company, but in Toronto, and was there for a number of years and again in a, a development capacity. In 1989, I joined vna Properties, which was then a boutique real estate company based in Toronto, and a company that I was with through 1997, at which time we sold the company to what was then Dundee Realty Corporation, which is today, uh, it was a forerunner for what is today Dream Office REIT, was there through the end of 2001, and then left with one of the other senior executives from Dundee at the time and formed Canfirst. So Canfirst has been around for 20 years. Really, the focus for the company has been the industrial space. We have raised capital. Through institutional investors, through private high net worth investors, and have raised about $800 million of capital over that period of time. We have launched seven closed end funds over that period, of which three of them are still active. Four of them have now been wound up and monetized. We also have, in addition to that, an open ended fund, which we launched back in 2018.
0: I got to ask then, Alan, because you mentioned a 20 year run with industrial here. Industrial in the last three years in terms of the excitement level and the sexiness and the, you know, being the bell of the ball. How's that compared to the first five years of industrial? I mean, I can speak to it personally, but I, you know, I started my career in industrial real estate over 10 years ago, and then it was doing leasing and sales. You know, you had to tour a property 40 times to try and rent it for 350 per square foot. And I know that's not the case now. So, Take us back even further to the earlier days of industrial, just as a counterpoint to what's happening now in the uh, marketplace.
2: It's funny you say that. So when we launched the company 20 years ago, our background, my partner and I at the time, had been primarily in the office sector and the industrial sector. We made the decision to go in the direction of industrial because what we were really looking to do was build a vehicle that would look and feel almost like a private REIT where we could raise capital, where we could pay regular distributions to our investors. And at the time, the decision was based partly on the fact that we perceived that there was less volatility in the industrial sector based on our experience. And you know, the thing about the office building business is it is a business for deep pocketed investors. Cycles can be severe, costs to carry vacant space to refit vacant space for releasing can be extensive. And so we made the decision at that time that we were going to focus on industrial. I do remember people saying to us when we did that, it's not a very sexy business. And we acknowledged that at the time. And there are many days where I now wish it was as unsexy as it was back then. But unfortunately, it's gone to the top of everyone's list.
1: Well, maybe let's dive in there. And I think it's interesting for our listeners and viewers to appreciate. We've had the pleasure of seeing Alan talk a couple of times. He's actually partnered with First National on a presentation he did. For us. And given his sessional instructorhood at the School of Business, he's fairly good at just answering questions that are coming at him. So, this is one of those conversations which I quite frankly really enjoy because it's really just free flowing. So, we're just going to pull on strings and see where we go, Alan. Talk about the sexiness of industrial, right? Like, you're right. Like, it, it used to just be pretty. Plain vanilla, right? There was boxes, and it might have two or three tenants, maybe seven tenants. I mean, the really more complicated part was maybe when you had multiple tenants or cold storage. Or you know, it was fairly boring, I guess. And then I mean, that's the opposite of sexy. What makes it so sexy today?
2: When you look out over the last couple of years, I would say, I mean, let's roll the clock back about five years or so, and for the sort of the fifteen or twenty years prior to that, the joke in the industry was that. You could check in at any given time in that 15- or 20-year period, and rents were likely between 4 and $6 a foot. Never higher, never lower. That all changed about five years ago. Markets started to tighten up, and landlords started driving rents. And that was good, and the sector was stable. But then the pandemic hit, and that kind of kicked everything into overdrive. E-commerce is a major driver in the industrial sector, as we all know. What's interesting and what some may not know, I think instinctively we all understand that we're all home and have been home for the last 18 months ordering stuff online at 11 o'clock at night in our pajamas. But the impact on e-commerce has been astounding. And so the growth in e-commerce in 2020 was equivalent to the growth in e-commerce for the previous 10 years. So you think about that and the far-flung impact that that has on e-commerce, on logistics, on warehousing, on manufacturing. And we wake up 18 months later in a market nationally where there is virtually no vacant space. And it's not a GTA phenomenon. It's not a Vancouver phenomenon. It's not a Montreal phenomenon. It's across the country. And even when we look at Alberta and Calgary, which is a market that we have been very active in, we continue to be active there. Calgary and Alberta obviously had some issues with the energy sector, but Calgary has really become a major hub for Western Canada, a major distribution hub. And in fact, Amazon just earlier this week announced the construction or or that they're going to be developing another major facility in Calgary. So as I said, this is not a one province, one city phenomenon in this country. This is across the board.
1: Alan, I think we're going to spend, of course, the majority of this conversation just talking about the macroeconomic forces that have caused, as you described, the rents to go up. And we're going to, probably ask some future-looking questions about where industrial is going and what we're going to see. I mean, Clear Heights continue to rise and double-decker industrial facilities and all sorts of things that, as you indicated, weren't transpiring for the last 15 or 20 years. I'm going to contradict myself. I was agreeing with you that it wasn't sexy and that it was kind of boring, or I use the term boring. But the cool thing about industrial, this is really just for a foundational layer for the rest of our conversation, It's not singular, right? I mean, everybody can kind of look at an office building, okay? Like whether it's an A class, a B class, a C class, wherever the geography is, everybody understands. You kind of come in, there's a foyer, an elevator, you go up to your floor, and the people that are sitting there working. Apartments, of course, same things. People they lie down, they sleep. Retail, again, same thing. You're walking in. Industrial is super dynamic in the sense that you've got cross facilities and fulfillment centers and industrial condos or cold storage which i mentioned like there's a whole other subset of industrial asset classes maybe i'm going to kind of call to your professor level of explanation but maybe just talk to how canfirst participates in all the different layers of industrial maybe just talk about your experiences or the way you see the industrial framework maybe pre the last 5 years because of, of course it's exploded And just talk about industrial as an asset class and why you found it so interesting to begin with.
2: Yeah. So, look, I mean, the industrial sector, like much of the real estate sector, is ultimately a reflection or a subset, if you will, of the general economy. So that's always the starting point for us in terms of of looking at buildings, looking at different geographic regions and determining where we want to invest and how we want to invest. Because, again, we are really there to service the general economy. So I can tell you that for many, many years, we've really focused on what I would tend to refer to as the the vanilla boxes. And what does that mean? So we have historically looked at and invested in certainly lots of multi-tenant facilities. We like the risk diversification profile of having many tenants, because invariably tenants do go out of business or do decide in the middle of the night to leave. So you're not beholden necessarily to one tenant. The other end of the spectrum, of course, with single tenant buildings, you are beholden to that one tenant. However, there's a reasonable likelihood that you could have a very strong tenant, very good covenants in those buildings. So we like that as well. Again, different risk profiles, and we've really invested in both of those types of buildings. The one thing that we've always been careful about is really staying away from buildings that are highly specialized. And so when we look at a building, one of the mantras in our philosophy has always been, it's great that the building is leased, but we're always looking past that existing tenant. Who's the next tenant? Who's going to lease the next time this lease comes up or the building goes vacant? Who is that tenant going to be? What is that tenant going to look like? The answer to that question is important to us because if it's any of a 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 different types of tenants, we're good. If it's a function of having to find the round peg for the round hole, that's not so good. And listen, I'm not going to sit here and say to you, we've never done that. What I will say, and again, this is the years of experience of doing this, is that over the years, the transactions or the investments that have not worked out the way we would have liked them to are often linked to buildings that are specialized, that are quirky, that are L-shaped, U-shaped, O-shaped, whatever letter of the alphabet you want to ascribe to it, because tenants generally don't come in those shapes. So that's been the takeaway, certainly one of the takeaways for us. When we talk about the current landscape, yeah, lots of different types of facilities, right? I mean, we've got an e-commerce fulfillment center that we own in one of our funds that is a a 250,000 foot fulfillment center out in Milton, Ontario, home to Foot Locker. They have been in that building for at least, I think, 15 years. They've got many years left to go on that lease. And that is a building that works well for them. It is certainly specialized to the extent that it is an e-commerce fulfillment center, but it is the type of e-commerce fulfillment center that could work for lots of other tenants. So that is certainly one area of specialization that we see in the marketplace. Logistics, warehousing. And one comment that I would make about that is, you know, I think the commonly held belief out there is that more ceiling height is better that 40 is better than 36, which is better than 32. I would say this, certainly for many users out there, if you are in the 3PL business, logistics, warehousing, yeah, you want that. You've got sophisticated racking systems that require that type of height. But I will tell you that we have invested over the years in many, many second generation buildings that have 20 foot clear heights, 18 foot clear heights, sometimes even lower. And there are many tenants out there Whose businesses run quite well in those types of facilities. You're not going to put Amazon into a 16-foot clear height building, clearly. But when I look at the breadth of the markets, you know, if you look at the GTA market, last time I checked, we have about 800 billion feet of inventory here, roughly half of all the industrial space in Canada. There are many, many, many users out there who don't have Amazon's requirements. So we're happy to cater to that segment of the market.
0: Yeah, and then of course, conversely, you've got tenants that don't want to pay for that additional height. So they're happy to take a 12 12- foot clear because it makes perfect sense for them. They're not paying for a bunch of air above their head. When you're talking about avoiding unique, specialized or quirky, where would self-storage
2: or cold storage fall in that investment view? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So let's start with cold storage. I mean, for sure, cold storage would qualify as specialized, but again, it's become such a prevalent part of the marketplace. The GTA Food Services is massive, Western Canada as well, parts of Alberta, and we see that. So there is certainly a very big market. There is a deep tenant pool for those types of buildings, and we do own some of those buildings in our portfolios. The one aspect about that that we tend to focus on as well is the actual level of improvements and the types of improvements in those buildings, because what might have been state-of-the-art for cold storage or freezer facilities 10 years ago, 15 years ago, may very well be obsolete today or within the next couple of years. So that is certainly an area that we are looking at. As I said, we do own those types of facilities in our portfolio, but we are always looking carefully at the age of those buildings, the age of the improvements, and the layout of those types of facilities. Self-storage is another business that has grown exponentially, which I guess People would generally consider that to be part of the industrial marketplace. It is somewhat specialized for sure. And still today in Canada, very much a fragmented in terms of ownership. I know that there are some players who have significant positions in that space. We don't and we never have. We've looked at a few opportunities. To be honest, we don't tend to see a lot of those opportunities. As I said, I think it's still very fragmented in that segment of the market lots of moms and pops. I, I do know that some bigger players have stepped in and started taking up positions. And I, I think it's a very viable business. It's another silo, certainly, of the industrial market, one that at some point we may take a closer look at. Yeah,
1: the challenge with self-storage, not dissimilar to maybe retirement homes or senior homes or hospitality, is there's way more operational risk than there is with others. If you've got a single tenant industrial, you got 10-year lease, then it's not a ton of effort versus managing 150-unit self-storage where you've got rollovers constantly. So there's just way more effort. You talked about cold storage. And on that vein of your original conversation or your original comment about looking for who's the next tenant, what is the tenant pool, should that existing tenant not be Then I think in cold storage, there's probably all of a sudden it squeezes tighter. And then if you've got older buildings or older facilities inside that cold storage, it gets even smaller Similar question about clear heights. Like just back to that concept about clear heights always getting higher, and yet you kind of say like there's a ceiling. Where's the tipping point? Like, you know, if you kind of built a curve about at 12 feet, there's a smaller tenant pool. At 80 feet, there's a small tenant pool. What's the, I'm sure it's a range, but what is the kind of the, the perfect mix in your view?
2: It's a great question. I would probably slice that into three tranches. The first one being the logistics players. It's got to start with a three. And likely the low end of that range is 32 feet up to 32 to 36, I think is kind of a pretty good standard today. I know there are some higher ceiling height buildings than that and 40 foot buildings, but I would say certainly if you're talking to a logistics tenant or company or warehouser, it's got to start with a three. I think there is a middle swath of the marketplace that lives and operates quite well in 24 to 28 feet, which are perhaps users that don't necessarily have. The same level of sophistication when it comes to their racking system and their warehousing needs. But lots of buildings in that size range. And again, as I mentioned earlier on, it's kind of a recurring theme. If you're a sizable tenant, and everyone's standards are different, but let's say kind of 50 to 200,000 foot tenant in today's market looking for 24 to 28 feet, there are not a lot of options. And depending on where in the country you're looking at, there may be no options. And then I would say third tranche is kind of the 14 to 20 foot range for tenants that tend to be, might be flex space, where they've got a little bit of warehousing requirement. It might be a manufacturing entity, which doesn't need the clear heights because the machines that they're using in their processes are not that tall. And flex types tenants who have high office components and need a bit of a shipping area, warehousing area. There are lots and lots of those types of businesses that work with that we come across.
0: Not that I want to make this a conversation just on clear height, but just one last one. I remember sitting through a pitch about 10 years ago for the services that can raise roofs on uh, existing buildings. And I haven't seen it that much out in the marketplace. I'm sure you've sat through similar pitches, but have you ever done that to a building or penciled out the economics of paying for it and then the potential rent that you could see realized?
2: Right. Yeah. It's an interesting question. So we probably seen the same pictures you have over the years. And I will say this, two things. One is, I don't know of too many buildings that we've seen where they said, hey, we just raised the roof. We have looked at a few that we thought might be candidates. But the conclusion we came to, and I think virtually every case was, it was more than just about a clear height issue. These are older facilities. And so it might have been a clear height issue, but it might have also been a base size issue. It might have been a truck turning media issue. It might have been a shipping door issue. It might have been a not sufficient car parking issue. So raising the roofs potentially addresses one problem, but there are other issues that can't be fixed by raising the roof.
1: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. That Maybe that's a, a good transition, Alan, into just talking about today's market. Rents are on the rise. If you haven't heard, cap rates are going down. If you haven't heard, valuations at an all-time high clearly driven, as you kind of indicated earlier on, about just the supply chain push and ordering goods from home. Maybe just talk about the evolution you've seen just in that last five years from where it was five years ago to today. And I don't even actually know. I guess it's really, what is the biggest change that you've seen? Clear Heights, we've talked about, is it a transition? You've talked about fulfillment centers. Maybe I would almost ask you to define what that means versus just a standard warehouse. Is that just number of docks? I've mentioned cross-dock facilities. I'm assuming you're seeing more of that in the marketplace. Like, What is the biggest change, or if there's a number of them, maybe just kind of talk through what this new focus and attention to industrial has meant ultimately for the asset class?
2: Sure. There are really two points that I'll touch on there. One is just in terms of the types of facilities. And so an e-commerce fulfillment center, an e-commerce facility, can take lots of different shapes and sizes. Yes, some of them have cross dock setups where goods come in one door, are resorted and then go out the other for shipping. In other cases, you've got buildings that have sophisticated and automated racking systems or pick and pack systems as they're often referred to. They have goods that are moving around in the facilities on conveyor belts into waiting trucks. Are interesting in that the one thing that they don't have a lot of is bodies because so many of the systems are automated in those types of facilities. So, and we're seeing more and more of that. And again, Amazon tends to grab a lot of those headlines. But there are others certainly in that space. And one of the phenomenons that I think is coming out of all of that, which really I don't think anyone was talking about five years ago, is multi-story facilities. So that is a thing now for sure, particularly in markets that are either land constrained like B.C. or Vancouver, or where land is extremely expensive like the GTA. And this is not a phenomenon that is relegated to Canada. I mean, it's happening in the States in Seattle is an example, and it's happening all over the world. Five years ago, nobody was talking about a three-story or a five-story facility. It just didn't exist. And today, of course, it's out there. And again, to use Amazon as an example, they've got a million-square-foot facility in the east end of Ottawa, which is a a one-story facility. But they've now got, in the south end of Ottawa, a 2.8 million-square-foot multi-story facility under construction, which, again, would have been unheard of four or five years ago. So I think that's been a big change, and I think we will continue to see More and more of that, particularly as that type of facility gains acceptance in the marketplace and becomes more and more prevalent. The other part of the question I want to just touch on for a moment is we do all talk about rental rates going up and cap rates coming down and valuations at all time highs. All of that is absolutely true. The one thing I will say is this the one change that I've noticed in terms of pricing over the last four or five years is that up until four or five years ago, if you had a building that had a lease, single tenant building with at least 25, 30, 40 percent below market with two years left to go on the term. You didn't bring that to market to sell it because the market was not going to pay you for that arbitrage. But that has changed. And today you get paid as a vendor for that uptick in rent, even if it's a year or two years away. What that means ultimately and how that's been translated is into lower cap rates. So we all hear 4.5%, 4%, 3.7% cap rates, and it seems as though every deal sets a lower and lower cap rate benchmark. But the one thing I would say to that is that I don't believe, I know the way we underwrite deals, and I'm pretty sure most sophisticated investors are looking at this through a similar lens, nobody's buying a building because they expect to earn a three and a half percent return for the next 10 years. That cap rate is somewhat illusory because it's based on low market rents, which in some cases can be as much as 40, 50, 60 percent below market. We acquired some buildings earlier on this year with rents that were in the mid to high $5 range, which I think in those buildings, we've since rolled over a couple of the leases. And in a matter of months, right now, these were leases that were three, four, five years old. And those rents are now in the high tens. So when we bought those buildings and the rents were 550, 575 a foot, we bought it at a cap rate that reflected the fact that we believed that there was an arbitrage opportunity in those rents. And so to me, the real way to look at a cap rate and what investors are paying is: well, what is the cap rate based on what we all think market rent is, not what rent is today in the buildings. Well, and and to that point, I guess
0: seven, eight years ago, nobody was willing to pay tomorrow's price today for an industrial asset, but now they are. So that's Mm -hmm. why you see a shift. And for sure, the criticism of the herd of cap rates, what you're highlighting here would be one of the main ones. It is something to consider, but by no means does it define a market or a deal or should be the main consideration. We spoke a little bit about futurization of the industrial market. And I will guarantee you, as soon as we're done, Aaron's going to pitch you on his concept of high-rise industrial right downtown. He's a big proponent of it. So as soon as we're done, get ready for that pitch of why it makes perfect sense. But you mentioned a number of things about the way that these industrial facilities are operated, reducing physical human body counts in there. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing now? Like the same way we got pitched 10 years ago on roof-raising services, what pitches are you seeing now for What we're going to be experiencing in the industrial market five years and now, from a you know robotization, automation aspect.
2: Yeah, so it's a the market is quite diverse. When you have a market of in this country of a billion and a half square feet, that number is probably light in today's standards. There's lots of different types of users, and again, as we talked about Clear Height, it's kind of analogous to what we're talking about now, which is there are going to be certainly leading edge type companies and tenants who are going to have setups in their buildings that will be more and more automated, that will be more and more run by robots and less and less run by humans. And I think that's a reality. And whether it's robots, whether it's drones flying around, there's no question that that is the future for a segment of the market. It's not necessarily the future for every tenant out there. And so pick a business if you're uh, in the business of manufacturing kitchen cabinets or selling tires or manufacturing clothing, your technology may be getting better and better. But the likelihood is there are many types of facilities that are going to need parking spaces for their employees for a long time to come.
1: Alan, is there a tenant squeeze going on right now with some of these, this price appreciation, rent appreciation, where it's kind of pushing some of the smaller occupiers to areas that just make it harder for their businesses to succeed? What could impact does a fifteen bucks square foot rent yeah. have on a segment of the market?
2: Yeah, listen, that's the million dollar question today, right? and And it's something that we think about when we're underwriting new investments is there isn't a market in the world where you can continually raise the price of that product and just keep going. And so one of the issues, of course, is space availability. And so rent is being driven today by economics one on one supply and demand factors no space, lots of demand. And so there are times where it seems like every week rents are going up. And that is tough because one of the things that we wonder about is, where is that ceiling? Where is that number where tenants are going to say, I can no longer afford to do this? Now, depending on who you listen to, I think there was there was someone talking to the Vancouver Forum last week about just that issue. And the comment was that, I don't remember exactly the percentage, but in terms of the percentage of the overall GNA for many companies, rent is still a very, very small component. And so the difference between a $10 rent and a $13 rent might not be cataclysmic. That's not necessarily true for every user out there, but it is true for many. And look, I mean. They're not easy conversations when you go to someone and say, listen, I know you've been paying five fifty dollars a foot for the last five years, but now we're about to double that on you. And we've been through this lots. And the reality is that, like I said, it's not an easy conversation. We're just bringing the realities of the market to the table. Because the truth is that tenant can call up their broker and say, listen, I'm outraged by my landlord's demands. Go find me other space. And that has happened to us a number of times. After those initial conversations, in most cases, those tenants are able to go out into the marketplace and determine that, in fact, that is the market. In many of those situations, they come back to us and we finalize the deal as a result of that. So it's not an easy time right now to be running that kind of a business. And that's just a straight renewal. If you're in a situation where you have a growing business and you have multiple locations and you're thinking about, I need more space or I want to consolidate my facilities under one roof, it's pretty challenging right now.
0: Yeah, to that point, Alan, I've got a friend who works for Pension Fund as an asset manager and he's been dealing with the same portfolio for north of 10 years now. And he said it's tough because a lot of these tenants 12, 15 years ago, he had to negotiate deals with them. And now you're having conversations on renewal where, yeah, rents are up 60%. And he knows them personally. There's a friendship element to it. And he said it uh, kind of breaks his heart a bit to have to, to have these conversations. But, of course, you can't leave yields on the table because, you know, you've enjoyed a couple of beers together. If you're looking at your portfolio now, Aaron, let's talk about operations. I like to talk about trying to make a buck in real estate. So if you're looking at your portfolio now, what subtype of industrial would you be most likely to sell out of your portfolio? And what do you most want to buy?
2: Yeah, so I think again, sort of two parts to that question, because in terms of how we run our business, our assets are owned in closed-end funds. So those funds have a life to them. When we acquire those assets, for the most part, we've been active in the value-add space. So when we acquire an asset, we've got a business plan in mind for that particular asset. We never get too emotionally attached to the asset. Once we've executed on that plan, then it's a sell decision and we move on. So from that perspective, as I said, we're not in a situation where, you know, we've only asked it for 30 years and we're emotionally attached to it and all of the tenants and they're part of the family and we don't want to get rid of it. So that's sort of the, the short answer in terms of how we govern the sell decision. I think that our focus really continues to be in geographic areas where we perceive growth in the types of buildings that are most in demand. And so again, I go back to looking at whether it's e-commerce, warehousing, logistics facilities, food-based facilities. Some of the key themes for us as investors are e-commerce, technology-driven companies, and food. So those are our silos. And it doesn't mean that we won't buy buildings that are outside of those silos, but those tend to be central themes for us as a company. And if you look at many of our facilities, they many of them do have at least one element of that.
1: I don't necessarily know how to phrase this question because it's a bit delicate, but I kind of want to ask you about some of the challenges facing the industrial industry, the asset class as it relates to just more supply, where this is coming from, as you had talked about, as users or occupiers of industrial space become more sophisticated, therefore there's less people, therefore there's less parking, less need for office space. I can imagine there's more efficiency are you able to get better zoning to build larger facilities on the same land? Like, are there challenges that you're feeling? I don't want to just blame municipalities because I think, unfortunately, our industry likes to just say the municipalities are slow and they're not giving me what I need to solve the problems. But what are some of the roadblocks that are... Because, again, it's, this is a supply and demand issue, really, right? There's a liquidity push. We've got a ton of users that need the space. We don't have nearly as much space. We need more industrial space in urban and suburban spaces what are the challenges to for us as an industry as a community to deliver that
2: yeah look I mean no shortage of challenges right so it's a challenge for users it's a challenge for owners and it's a challenge for investors and this is a situation that I don't think anyone could have foreseen as recently as two three years ago and look unfortunately the problem is you can't add supply overnight. The good news is, unlike office buildings that take years and years to conceive and build, industrial buildings can go up pretty quickly. So, yes, there are zoning issues. Municipalities have to work hand in hand with developers. And I think many of them are because, look, at the end of the day, any municipality wants to have businesses, wants a tax base, wants the employment base. And so it's incumbent on municipalities and developers to work together. It's in everyone's best interest. So, I think it's at the top of certainly the municipalities' agendas, the developer's agendas. But it is a challenge. And I think that for now, that pressure is not going to change anytime soon. But here's what I will say. I think the meteoric growth that we've seen in e-commerce, I'm going to venture to say that as the world slowly reopens, and as we all start to decide that, you know what, maybe I'll actually take a drive to Costco instead of sitting here and ordering everything online, I think that will hopefully take some of the pressure off. And look, we're a long way from equilibrium in the industrial market. I mean, if you believe that plus or minus a 5% vacancy rate is equilibrium, we're tens of millions of square feet away from that today. But I do think that it's likely that e-commerce growth will likely level off. In the next little while. And I think the other thing that we're going to start to see, frankly, is a move to some secondary markets that offer more plentiful land, lower development charges, lower land costs. I know that some players have already taken large positions in secondary nodes in major markets. And I think that's going to continue. And I think that will be tied in in many cases to where people live. And so not everybody lives in the big cities. So there are smaller pockets outside of major cities, and historically, the jobs have been in the major cities, but I think that's going to start to change. I think a lot of those jobs will be in secondary and tertiary markets.
0: Which is great, obviously, for those local economies to have quality tenants pushed out there and then serious investment dollars to follow. The industrial industry obviously has had a huge shift. Every sector of real estate has had a huge shift in the last two years. Physical real estate can't follow that easily. Retrofit, of course, is you know the other way of adapting to that. You know, we just discussed constructing new industrial, but retrofit, of course, is another way to adapt. So, what retrofits are you seeing in your portfolio that are profitable and desirable by tenants?
2: I think that we've been involved in many retrofits in, in buildings of ours across the country. I would say a lot of it ties into creating a better facility that will cater to more tenants' businesses and different tenants' businesses. And, and so As an example, I mean, we had a facility in Western Canada some years ago that we always thought there were some issues with shipping, with truck turning radius, with the way the configuration of the the entrances. This was a front loading building, which is somewhat unusual, certainly in Eastern Canada, a little more prevalent in Western Canada. And the building needed some TLC. And so we went in and spent quite a lot of money in that building. Now, again, it's not easy to retrofit buildings when you have tenants. But we were in the fortunate position, or unfortunate, depending on how you want to look at it, of having a building that was almost vacant. So it was a little easier to do that and to effectuate the capital work that we needed to. Once that work was done, we were able to go back into the marketplace and the project has turned out to be quite successful for us. So it really is about understanding what tenants are looking for in terms of shipping aprons and power and base sizes. So that's a big part, certainly, of when we're looking at those types of opportunities. And, you know, and then the other side of that is you touch on when we think about redevelopment opportunities. There are lots and lots of buildings in older industrial areas that are functionally obsolete. They're well past their best before date. Those buildings are going to be ripe for either redevelopment or for a complete teardown and starting over again. So those are also, we think, opportunities, whether it's in the GTA in South Etobicoke, South Mississauga. In Montreal, uh, parts of Lachine, LaSalle, again, areas that were thriving industrial areas 30, 40, 50 years ago. And the stock is 30, 40, 50 years old, and the market now has different demands.
1: I'm an investor. Let's say I'm from some small foreign country, and I've got $100 million to buy an industrial building. And I say, okay, here you go. Here's my $100 million. And you have this weird sort of carte blanche. You can go and buy or build or go anywhere and buy anything. What is it? Where is it and why?
2: It's, as you gentlemen both know, it's a pretty competitive marketplace out there in terms of being able to buy product. Everything is heavily bid. Let's go back to what we were just talking about a few moments ago. I think that there are some really, really interesting opportunities in some of the older parts of major cities. And so we like to think of it, or we refer to it as as a covered land play, where you might be buying an old building that's Again, past its best before date, there are tenancies or a tenant there, and you've got some yield for a few years, but ultimately you're buying the site because, you know, you're going to either redevelop the building or tear it down and start over again. The locations that are closer to the city are ultimately going to be hugely valuable for e-commerce service providers because those companies and those tenants are all trying to get closer to our front door because for many of us, two and three day delivery now is about two or three days longer than we're prepared to accept. And so those locations that are central, many of which, again, are locations that are terrific locations, but have older buildings that just aren't going to work for many users, that would not be a bad place to park some money right now, particularly if you can afford to be patient. It's not a today thing, but over the next three to five years, I think many of those sites are going to provide excellent opportunities for very, very strong investments. And last question,
1: what's your favorite building you've ever owned, currently owned or historically?
2: (laughs) Wow, there's a question that nobody's ever asked. No emotion of investment, Aaron, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know what? It's like saying which one of your children is your favorite, right? There have been many. Which one is a favorite obviously goes hand in hand ultimately with which one was one of our more successful investments. Yeah. I will say this and, you know, we haven't talked a lot about the condo market, the industrial condo market. That's a real market. It's, again, a bit of a specialty and there are some players out there who are very, very good at that. We acquired some buildings, a cluster of buildings some years ago. And the idea was we were going to convert them into industrial condos. And so we sat down, we brought in planning consultants and we brought in building consultants. We did all that stuff and the lawyers to guide us through the process. And we spent about two years doing that. And when we were ready to pull the trigger on that, we had a conversation about that was kind of phase one. Phase two was we're going to spend the next two or three years doing this. And there's always risk and uncertainty, right? We're spending money on the buildings, and then we're going to go out and try and sell the units. And the conversation really circled around, well, is there a price today that someone would step up and pay us to buy that dream from us and to effectively de-risk the deal for us? And initially, when we came up with that number, the thought was the market's not quite there. And certainly, our brokers did not think the market was there. But we said, oh, let's give it a shot. And it turned out the market was there. We did very, very well on those buildings. It is certainly one of my happier stories when it comes to happy endings. And the extension of that is the group that bought it from us, I think has also done extremely well. And that's always good. We always like that. My view of it is we need to make money, but we want to make sure the next group is going to be able to make money as well. And so, yeah, that was a pretty good one.
0: It's a good thing we don't measure our kids by uh, yield or uh, we would have favorites. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's a good thing it's a little more. We're we No, (laughs) true. (laughs) Alan, I want to thank you for your time
2: today. It was a pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. And I really enjoyed it.
1: Welcome to the commercial real estate podcast after show where Adam and I digest the conversation we just had with uh, Alan Perez. I just really enjoy his energy, right? Like just chatting with him about obviously something that he's passionate about. Anytime somebody decides to be a teacher, professor on a topic, clearly it's something that they just love, right? And you can just get that energy. Whether you're listening on the podcast or whether you watch the the webinar live and you could see him, it just comes out that he's just, there's something that he just, he just loves talking about it, right? Well, yeah. If you're in
0: an industry that pays more than being a teacher, generally it is, you know, for love of, love of teaching. I, I had a, a professor in uh, the business school who used to hand out 20s for correct answers. So he was clearly not there to try and uh, make money. I think he probably gave away most of what he was getting paid during classes. But just a guy that loved it. You know, And, and you, you love those people. I mean, Alan must be a great professor for that reason, because his energy levels would be very, very relatable and easy to listen to. I think we experienced that today. He's knowledgeable, speaks very well. It was uh, you know, a good conversation with him.
1: And this is kind of a side conversation or kind of side, side comment. For our regular listeners and even just for you, like I struggle at times with this stuff because sometimes, you know, you and I have had these conversations multiple occasions, and and I I worry that perhaps we're not necessarily asking the generalist questions. But one of the things that I thought that Alan did a good job at was just kind of just describing the state of the industrial market, right? Like he really did a good job of just talking about how there's cold storage, there's fulfillment centers, there's the, the transportation logistics issues, like there's really just the basics of the challenges of the industrial asset. And industrial is the most complex asset ultimately, right? Like we kind of joked early on that it's not sexy, his words. And I said boring, which I'm ultimately, I think I'm just wrong at. It is really complex. There are probably 30 subclasses of the industrial asset class. And I just, I think that's what makes it most interesting. A human being going to rent a department
0: building can adapt to an ill-fitting apartment likely easier than a business can adapt to an ill-fitting industrial facility. If you got a, a site with you know three acres of outside storage and a forty percent office component and a shipping apron that was meant for trucks, you know that predate the fifty-three footers that are around there now. Your ability to operate just breaks down to zero. You know it's not it's not a buy the pound business. It's not just uh, uniform. You want to rent a box? I got a box, and I feel like. People that don't regularly interact with that asset class kind of have that feeling
1: about it. No, no, I agree. Before we started recording the after show, but after we stopped recording the original show, I did mention Alan and you teased it, and I just never asked the question about the uh, multi story industrial. Like, not multi story, I'm talking high like rise, 20, 20 <laughs> high rise industrial. And I felt embarrassed to ask it while we were on live, but it did come up during the middle of. Space between these two. I'm giving myself a like, not pat on the back, but he did acknowledge it's probably something that may occur in the future. That there are probably ways in which that, that becomes a way to maximize density and land use that otherwise wouldn't fit on a, you know, 400,000 square foot or multiple, multiple hectare land where the demand is just so great to have that, you know, last mile, last minute hub and spoke delivery, I mean, however you want to define it, that it could go there at some point. So I'm going to just say, like, he acknowledged it. I'll consider him probably one of the most foremost experts in industrial, and he acknowledged that it, it could go there. So there you go. Yay, <laughs> yay me. <Yeah.
0: laughs> the advocate of high-rise, high-rise industrial. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's a bright future for sure. There's a few other things we didn't get to today. I mean, you know, drone delivery, You know, some of the other stuff that's a bit futuristic, we didn't get into too much, but we have talked about it in the past. I mean, it sounds like it may or may not happen. We didn't get into to last mile delivery too much in the interim conversation. Did not make it, you know, publicly. Uh, we well, did talk about shipping issues, about trucks in tight spaces, and that obviously you know impacts last mile. Yeah, it does prove the point that we you know spend an hour talking about industrial, and I feel like we just scratched the surface, you know, it's not just a a box that we're talking about.
1: Well, I mean, I think it kind of came implicitly with his conversations. It's about, you know, urban purchases, urban acquisitions, you know, finding those that low hanging fruit where it's sort of an older second, third generation asset that needs repositioning. I think that's what he was talking about. It's like if you as close as you can get to humans, right, the better really, I think with this asset class, which is normal for all asset classes, but (laughs) you often think about industrial being on the outskirts. and, And clearly that, That model doesn't work if you're really focused on sort of e-commerce occupiers.
0: Yeah, he's one of those guests that you mentioned it, uh, you know, have him back in a year and we have a whole new uh, set of discussions. I would definitely connect with him again to do do a State of the Union. But that is it for today uh, on Industrial. Thanks to everybody that listened uh, to the end and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting or legal advice. First National Financial LP Holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.